0: Amato's fifth quarter is partnered with The Inner Sanctum. The Inner Sanctum, founded in 2020, is the new ball game and sports journalism which aims to take you behind the closed doors of sporting clubs around the country in an effort to tell the stories of those on the field. Visit The Inner Sanctum at www.theinnersanctum.com.au as well as following them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Inner Sanctum, unique interviews. Unique content for you. This is Dale Pickett. This is
1: Eugene Brinkins. This is
2: Kevin Brooks.
0: This is Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Dale McDonald. This is Sam Jacobs. This
2: is Calvert. This is Marcus Burris. This is Sean Redditch. This is Tammy Spaghetti. This is Andrew Vlapoff.
0: This is Graham Korn.
2: This is Brian Kill. This
1: is Jason Akamanis. This is Chris McDermott.
2: This is Mike Ellis. This is Kevin Litch. This is Matt Smith.
0: And you're listening to Amato's Fifth Quarter.
1: ghosts, a grand finals pass, bottom in November, premiers in April, champions in May. The fairy tale is now complete, and after once being the worst franchise between sport in history, the Sydney Kings, with an unprecedented 3
0: Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to see you. Welcome to another episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter. I'm your host, Dan, and tonight, my special guest is former A-League legend, three-time championship player, and former club captain of the Brisbane Raw Football Club, it's Matt Smith who joins me tonight. Now, Matt's story is a little bit different from a lot of other footballers. He's originally from England, was was born there and and raised there and, and fell in love with football from a young age and sort of came up the ranks to eventually make the professional level here in Australia. But unlike a lot of other athletes, he didn't actually become a professional footballer and Uh, make a full-time living until he was 27, which is obviously quite late. A lot of other, not just footballers, but sporting people, sort of get to that professional level late in their teen years, early 20s. So 27s, well, certainly you've got a different view of life compared to 18 years older. And Matt and I discussed some of the reasons why he didn't make that professional level until a little bit later in his career. But of course, he did eventually make the Pro League here in Australia, played in the A-League for the North Queensland Fury, and then later would go to the Brisbane Raw, where he would be a part of that incredible dynasty, the first true dynasty in A-League history, that Brisbane Raw team that won three championships in four years, 2011, 2012, and 2014, under Ange Postacoglu and Mike Mulvey. They had players like Ivan Franich, Enrique, Matt Mackay, Michael Theo, the list goes on. It was an incredible team, and we talk about each and every one of those championships, And how Matt saw it and his relationship with the players, his relationship with Ange Postacoglu. uh, That was really interesting to listen to. And I think this is going to be an episode that everyone's going to enjoy. From 2009 to 2014 in the A-League, he played a total of 124 games, scoring five goals. He is, as we mentioned, a three-time A-League championship player in 2011, 2012 and 2014 as a part of that Brisbane Raw Dynasty. He was a two-time A-League Team of the Season member in 2010-11 and 2013-14. He was the Brisbane Roar Captain from 2011 to 2014 and he also represented the A-League All-Stars in 2014 against Juventus. And he also made three appearances for the Australian national team. So he's assembled a wealth of experience here in the A-League. He is an icon of the league From the North Queensland Fury, Brisbane Roar, and the Australian national team, it's Matt Smith about to come onto the ground.
1: Brisbane Roar premiers, now title winners, champions of Australia for a record third time. The captain of the Brisbane Roar, number two, Matt Smith.
0: Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter. And today we've got a three-time championship player of Brisbane Raw and former club captain, Matt Smith. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah,
2: thanks, man. Thanks for having
0: us. It's been seven years since you played your final game in the A-League. Seems like a a lifetime ago, but at the same time, uh, seems like only yesterday. And it was a couple of years since your last professional gig. So what have you been up to since then? Where is life at for you here in in 2021? And do you miss playing football professionally?
2: Yeah, I mean... um you're making me sound old now seven <laughs> years is uh seems like it's a long time which which it obviously is but i've had some very very great and fond memories that um at brisbane raw which they only feel like yesterday so it um was a was a fantastic era for for the club and you know my, my fellow teammates throughout those years and obviously the, the key the key people involved so um yeah seven years seems like a long time but it doesn't um it definitely doesn't feel like that but uh Yeah, obviously it's been a couple of years now since I um, retired from from pro football um, in what's been an interesting playing career, um, running across many years and and, and different journeys and ups and downs. uh, Like most footballers have, we all have our own unique story. Um, I guess since I I finished in Hong Kong, um, the last 18 months I've obviously transitioned from professional football into semi-professional football. so, you know, I guess during during that course, I um, I went and uh, played and was a technical director and, and head coach of an under eighteen team at Gold Coast Knights um, for um, for several months, and then um, an opportunity arose to to come and join Brisbane City as the, the overall director of football. Um, and uh, and I'm still playing, but um, I've also transitioned now into the the head coach of the club. So, um, I guess from a playing professional point of view I've now transitioned into running a running a football club um, being head coach of, a, of the men's first team and, and obviously still still putting the boots on um, for these uh, for these last moments in, in my playing
0: career so do you think and I ask this question a lot to to my guests when you've been in the sporting industry for pretty much your whole life when you retire from the professional game it's hard to give the game away altogether
2: yeah, I think that each each individual player is a little bit different. I've I've personally been been very lucky with injury. Um, I know that some players don't have the longevity in their career um, and have gone on to either stay in the game through coaching or administration side of sport, or they've or they've given football away completely and um, had you know secondary um, careers in in all walks of life. So the um, yeah, I guess my my journey football is a little bit different. I, I only turned professional at 27, um despite being at a pro club when I was younger. I got I got released when I was young, and then I I was very lucky that I was able to get back in later on in my in my football career. So, um, you know, I had I had 10 years um, playing playing pro football, which again I'm very very grateful for. But since, transitioning or since retiring, um, I think that there's for me personally, I still like that element of um, being on the pitch. I guess you could say I'm of the mindset that um, I'm coming towards the end, but um, I'm still physically and mentally able to, to play at the current level that I'm playing at. Um, however, I think that, uh, that that's just my mentality. As much as I can, I, I'll continue. But I think I think the time comes where you know you know when, you, when your time's up. And um, I'm not too far off that. I guess you could say I've got some very good players in and around me which are Almost half my age now, so the other deciding factor is, you know, if I'm still hanging around, then I'm potentially preventing a younger player developing into into um, into the shirt, so to speak.
0: Taking you back to the start, Matt. So you're of course born uh, in England. Uh, whereabouts did you grow up? Yeah, if you're happy to talk about it, uh, give us a bit of an insight into your family life and and also where did your love of football originate from?
2: Yeah, good questions. I think I'll start with that one. Like the love of football. Started from, I guess you could say, my father um, in England. Footballs, um, I guess you could say, uh, it's it's be the number one sport. Where you wake up in the morning, and the first thing that you read is the back pages, back pages of the paper. Um, footballs everywhere. You, you walk down the street, you talk football. You go into your, your local supermarket or your or your corner shop or where it may be, and footballs everywhere. So. When, when you're surrounded by an environment and community that's, that's so heavily engrossed in football, it's, it's not a difficult one to kind of bleed yourself into. So, my father played, and as early as I can remember, I was you know cart around in the backseat going, going to watch his games. So I, I kind of fell in love with with the sport from fr- from that context. And growing up in school, um, all of your all of your friends are playing it as well. So um, that's how I, I started falling in love with the game. Um, how it all started in England, it's, it's a lot more localised at the beginning than what it is here in Australia. You have very, very small village clubs, and everyone plays with your local village club. And um, that's how it started for me in a, in a very um, localised um, village club. And uh, we were lucky to play in, you know, I guess you get say, a county league. Um, and then I was, I was picked up by Portsmouth Football Club at the age of 10. Um, I guess you could say for my performances, like you don't play any league games up until under tens anyway over there. I don't know if it's changing now, but um, I was picked up pretty quickly by a pro club, and I spent the next seven years going through the whole academy development at, at Portsmouth to to be released at seventeen. Um, so my early uh, my early football career was you know based in Chichester in Sussex and picked up by Portsmouth, which is southern England falling in love with the game because of, I guess you could say, family and environment, and um, was picked up at a pro club early.
0: Particularly over there in England, there is a real defined pathway for young aspiring footballers, and there's, uh, I suppose, various ways you can make the highest level, especially when you compare it to the pathways here in Australia that are sometimes non-existent. I know this is 20-odd years ago, but or, or nearly that long ago, but... When, when, <laughs> making me feel old again. And, uh, <laughs> not intentional, but um, when... When you were coming through, were those systems and pathways still as clear back then? Yeah, I think the big, the big
2: difference in structure, um, I guess you've got to go back decades um, from from football history and heritage. Obviously, the, the English and British game um, has, has been around a lot longer than what Australian football has. So when you have the 100, 150 plus years of football opposed to, you know in context, the Australian game, there's a significantly vast amount of difference. The next comparison is that obviously the the population size in Britain is huge, uh, about 60 million mark, um, and of that the football population is is very very high amongst all levels. So when you look at your football tiers and your structures geographically, obviously Britain's a lot a lot smaller as well. So you have you have your professional clubs which go down several levels, whereas here in in Australia you have one professional level and one professional league. So when you compare England or Britain to to Australia you have a huge depth of, of, of pro clubs and a huge number of pro clubs so within every single league there you have 18, 20, 22 teams whereas in, here in Australia you have a limited number of teams and there's only one pro league so that obviously then restricts a lot of numbers coming through the system. Now what I benefited from not only from like the, the pro environment for those seven, seven, seven years is that even beneath that, you have probably got another three or four very competitive levels of, of very good football players. So, I played in, in what's known as non-league football, which is your equivalent to, I guess, you could MPL level um, for you know until I moved to Australia. So, I probably played at, at that non-league level part-time or semi-professional for around four or five, six years before coming to Australia. But those where those levels are still very, very competitive. So. If you combine your semi-professional and professional leagues in 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 Britain, you, you're close on ten to twelve levels in terms of hierarchy. So you generally knew your pathway that if you're a certain if you're a certain league or a certain standard, the objective was to go to the, the next level up or the next level up. And it's not too different here. Obviously, you got NPL players that are playing at this level and. And are aspiring to go to the A-League But I guess the difference is the amount of ladders you need to climb up To get to the top in England or Britain compared to here in Australia So it was clear um, But it was highly competitive um, And uh, I guess you could say history and heritage and, and structures a little bit different
0: Yeah, yeah, makes sense So when was it through these junior years and coming up the ranks When you realised you were potentially good enough To actually make a full-time living out of football?
2: To be honest with it it probably wasn't until i finished so i got released that probably going back a couple of steps the reason why i didn't make it being signed at 10 up until the ages of about 15. um i guess you could say i was playing with no fear i was playing full of confidence um i was playing without any thought process of making mistakes and probably the reason why i didn't make it during those 16, 7, eight, sixteen, seventeen, 16, 17, was that uh, I stopped doing the things that got me there in the first place. So, you know, making the easy options, not not playing poorly, but not impacting the game like I did in the previous few years. Um, not being brave, not being confident, not wanting to... Uh, being too scared of making mistakes is probably the biggest reason why I I personally feel that I didn't make it. And it wasn't until I was offered a, a scholarship to a, to a university to do my master's degree which was a full-time football environment. So a lot of the universities in England now have got full-time football programs, and I was one of the first kind of um, students to kind of be drafted into that full-time environment from a football point of view. But then, alongside doing my master's degree as well, and it wasn't until that point where I started to get, I guess you could say, noticed by some of the the, the lower end, like the lower league full-time professional clubs. Like my name was being jotted around a few clubs, and I started to probably believe in myself a little bit more. Um, during those years, and I then got selected to play for the England Universities, and I then went and got selected to play for Great Britain Universities in the, in the World Games in Thailand um, in 07, and and then probably from that, I started to believe that I might have a I might have a chance, and I guess it coincided with my move to Australia, and I spent one year in Australia in 2005 as my sandwich year for my bachelor's degree, and. Um, I was actually asked by Queensland Raw back then, approached to, you know, to play in the first Queensland Raw thing, but I turned it down because I was pretty much 80% through my, my, my BA degree. I didn't I return back to England. So it probably wasn't until that early to mid-20s where I kind of found a belief in myself again that I could probably give it a good shot.
0: Well, so you actually could have been a part of the, the inaugural Queensland Raw A-League team.
2: Yeah, so I was playing for playing for Palm Beach at the time, Palm Beach Sharks. When it used to be the old, this is before QSL and MPL, but it was the old football Brisbane competition. So I was here for a year, and we ended up winning the league that year with Palm Beach Sharks. And then, and then yeah, I was approached by um to to come and join to to come and join that squad. Um, so um, yeah, back then, like I said, I, I had a tough decision to make. I was, I was at a pro club for several years. Um, I was released and, and, and let go and with, with kind of nothing to my name. So I had to like basically start again from a, from a second career point of view. So I'd already invested three or four years in terms of my education and degree program. And I always knew I had to go back to England to finish off my degree. So it was a choice more so at that point to kind of finish what I started and, and return back to England. But yeah, there was an the opportunity. There was an the opportunity then.
0: So are you more on the side of like do you believe you need to have something away from football because you said you, you obviously put your studies before your your football do you think it's important to have I guess a plan B
2: Yeah absolutely um, I've gone full circle so when I was when I was at Portsmouth going through my teenage years I put my football first ahead of my education it's probably the best way to put it I still was a, an average student and I went through the exam process and it was fine but obviously I was I, I was heavily focused on football and then to be released by a club after seven years just from a phone call and then the next day it's over kind of led me to believe that i need to have you know i guess you could say two two doors open at once so i have always still tried to play the highest level that i that, that i could or had the opportunity to play so it wasn't like i didn't give up on football but i was restricted in terms of getting opportunities to play at a higher level so um, simultaneously as i was trying to continue football um i went down the education path. So. Um, obviously, I invested a lot in my education path to go to university, and I was already a long way through my degree program to then get a an in not a, not an insecure offer, but there was the offer from 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 Queensland more back then opposed to finishing my my degree program. So at, at that point, I chose my degree program because I guess you could say when when I was approached, there was it was just the early stages and I made the early decision that I was to finish off finish off my degree. so, um, I've kind of gone full full circle, and I guess one of the I'm a big advocate now of of players, particularly in full time environments, to um, number one, make sure you concentrate on your football. There's no doubt about that. You have to be as best you can be, and you've got to make sacrifices when you're playing football because very few percent actually get that opportunity. So, but I also feel that if you have the capability to, and you have a long career in football, that I think it's important that you prepare and plan for potentially life away or life after football. I think that's really important.
0: The thing is, is that you're always one injury away from it being over.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I think I've touched on it previously before. I've, I've been very lucky, very lucky in my career through injury. I haven't had any. I've had a couple of, couple of major um, surgeries and stuff, but nothing that's that's, that's been career-ending. And um, there's there's no doubt, hundreds of thousands of players that unfortunately are, are very, very talented, and, but but extremely bad luck with injuries, uh, and then also their their progression within football, so um, I know it's a, a bit of a pain. But you know, you're only one game away from retirement, really. So it's it's important that you prepare for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just before we get onto your Australian career, um, we've mentioned uh, the Portsmouth experience. Can you, or uh, well, what are your memories from from that experience? And what was the reason it didn't quite work out there the way you probably hoped it would?
2: My experiences are fantastic. Like I said, you you, you you're at a pro club. You're training and you're playing with the best players within, within the region or the area. The demographic and geographic is a little bit different in, in, in England because you have a number of pro clubs in and around. You know, it's like, say, having South East Queensland and having 15 pro clubs all, all at varying levels. So it's, it's highly competitive. You, you, you're always playing local derbies and you know playing against other professional clubs, which is a, a phenomenal experience driving around England and, and, and playing all these games. Being challenged again by by teammates and the coaches, and you know, challenged against teams from from London or West of England or wherever it may be. The obviously the the training context was was very different back then to, to, to kind of what the philosophy and approaches are now. in, in I guess you can say the modern era. Um, so my my fond memory is principally that. Um, I touched on that a little bit earlier that the reason why I didn't make it, I feel, was not because I didn't have the ability, I think that I thought I think I had the ability, but I probably didn't have the bravery and the mindset that's needed. I think that I, I stopped doing the things that got me there in the first place. Uh, I got through games, I was always playing, I got through games, but I wasn't making the impact that I was making um, during those early years, and back then I was a striker, believe it or not. I only started playing central defence at 26.
0: Oh, really? Um,
2: yeah. So I was a striker back then. Um, okay. I pretty much spent the first 10 years of my career as a striker. And the next 10 years as a central midfielder, and then the last 10 years as a central defender. So it might be one of the reasons why I adapted to potentially, you know, Angie's system is you know, being comfortable playing out from the back because um, I'm not exactly the, the tallest central defender that, that, that you'll ever come across. But I guess there's different strengths or different competencies that I bring to my game, I guess. So, yeah, the reason why I didn't make it was, I think, because I wasn't confident enough, I wasn't brave enough, and I stopped doing things that got me in the first place.
0: All right, everyone. It's time for a quick quarter-time break here on A5Q. Recently, I've become an ambassador of Pete and Pedro, the kings of men's hair and beard grooming. The days of the caveman are now over, gentlemen. We all need to keep on top of our hygiene, cleanliness, and style, too. Unfortunately, most chemist store products do not achieve this efficiently, So if you want high quality results, you're going to have to go for high quality products. Pete and Pedro, established in 2013, offers premium hair, beard and grooming products and tools for any well-groomed man. These products are actually going to get in there, moisturize, rehydrate and clean your scalp, hair and beard thoroughly without putting a hole in your wallet. From shampoos and conditioners to hair gels and putties, beard oils, brushes, combs and even nail clippers, Pete and Pedro has it all. Now, I would never promote a brand I did not use or trust. Guys, I've been using Pete and Pedro products for the past two years and can confidently say there are no better hair and beard products on the market. Gentlemen, if you are looking to take your hair game to that next level without breaking the bank, you've got to check out Pete and Pedro. And if you use my special discount code, Diamato10, spelled D A M A T O10, you're going to get 10% off your purchase for a limited time only, so get in quick. The link to Pete and Pedro is down in the description below. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get back to the show. How exactly did Australia come about? Because as we've established, your journey to the A-League was quite different and unique to a lot of other overseas players. How did you end up here in Australia and sort of the journey to eventually get your first A-League contract?
2: Long story short, my, my uncle emigrated over here probably 35 years ago. We just visited visited him on a holiday just before the Sydney Olympics, actually. I think that was 1999, I think we came across. And um, we, we spent six weeks on the Gold Coast. Um, I was 16, 17 at the time. And um, my parents returned and, and basically said that they wanted a, a lifestyle change. And they went through the immigration process of moving from England to Australia. I simply fell underneath their application, so I didn't have to process anything. My parents done all the paperwork and all the legwork, and my name was one of uh, my name was simply a family member. So they moved over here in 2004, whereas I, I was in England doing my doing my degree program. So, like I said, I spent a year here in 2005, um, and then I went back in 2000, 2005 and returned in 2007. And um, I always knew that I was going to rejoin my family once I finished my education. And yeah, so my journey from 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 England to Australia was purely from a, my my parents and my siblings' point of view, and, and then yeah, like from a from a footballing context, I started off here at the at the Brisbane Strikers. Obviously, I knew that they were probably the biggest club at that point uh, within the local region. And living on the Gold Coast, I I contacted and just emailed Stuart McLaren, and 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 I guess fortunately for him, the CEO and the club knew who I was from my time at Palm Beach and had a meeting and, and find the strikers
0: and play for them for the next two years. When you made the A-League, you, you originally played with North Queensland Fury and you played under Ian Ferguson, you got to play with Robbie Fowler as well, you shared a locker room with the likes of Jason Spaniolo, who was a, a good player at Adelaide United, Shane Stefanudo, who would be your championship teammate at Brisbane Raw but I'm interested to, to hear about the North Queensland Fury experience because that's sort of one chapter of the A-League that doesn't really tend to get spoken about all that much. What was your experience and your memories from that that time at the North Queensland Fury?
2: Yeah, mixed, but on the whole, very, very good. I guess the journey to that point, you know, I was at Brisbane Strikers and I trialled at at Brisbane Raw at that point. I trialled at Gold Coast United to be told that I wasn't good enough, basically. I actually trialled at North Queensland Fury and Ian Ferguson offered me a contract before the first season, but then he found out I was a visa player. So um, I was offered a contract, uh, and then pretty much ten minutes later, um, I got an- another knock on the door on a preseason game up in Rockhampton or Bundaberg, one of the two. Um said that we can't sign it because he's already gone with other Visa players. So I kind of went back to, I went back to the strikers, and then it was in the off-season for Brisbane strikers, and I got a I got a random phone call from Ian Fergus on the Monday morning. They just got beat five 0 by Mariners at home up, up in Townsville, and. He basically phoned me and said, "Look, if um, there was a couple of injuries, and he said, Look, if you're if you can if you can pass a fitness test tomorrow, then you'll play against Adelaide at the weekend.'" But it was it was as quick as that. It, it kind of came out of the blue. I guess I was very lucky in putting my advice to a lot of aspiring NPL players is that it's quite easy in in the off season to kind of take it easy and relax. Whereas I guess I was motivated to keep my fitness up to, to you know to stay on the ball to to avoid you know, partying or, or, or just taking my foot off the pedal for a little bit, and I'm grateful that I made that decision at that point because I was pretty much on a flight the next day. I flew up from the airport, got out, went and had a fitness test at the pitch, and I passed the fitness test. Went in the office and, and agreed on a, I, I only agreed on a six-week contract. Um, so it was a six-week injury replacement contract. I was a marketing manager for a finance company down on the coast. Um, they were very supportive and, and knew my ambitions for football. And yeah, like that—that's how it all started. Just a six-week contract.
0: So, why do you think things didn't work out in, in terms of North Queensland Fury? Why the club didn't quite work out? Because they're obviously no longer around uh, the A League anymore.
2: Yeah. So, during that six-week period, after my second game, we played. We Adelaide at the weekend, and I think we flew down to Sydney for my second A League game. And after that game, I got a phone call from Miron <laughs> from Gold Coast United offering me a a two-and-a-half-year deal to go back to Gold Coast United. And um, pretty much simultaneously, Fury offered me a a two-and-a-half-year contract. So I actually signed a a two-and-a-half-year pro contract with North Queensland Fury because they were the first person or the first club and and people to to give me the opportunity. So I I declined Gold Coast United and stayed with North Queensland Fury. So we we started the season. I played the remaining 10 of the 11 games. I missed the last game of the season because I had a... Like a hyperextension in my knee down, down in one of the games in Melbourne, so I missed the last game of the season. I was ready to relocate my whole family back up to back up, 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 to, up to Townsville. That's when uh, the PFA flew up and, and basically told us that the owners uh, or the owner, I don't know what the financial reason was, but there was no financial backing for the club anymore. And the, the, the FFA at that point were, were going to take control of the club for the following season. So there was probably a week or two weeks of limbo. Um, we were told that our contracts were basically void. So I signed a two and a half year deal, but was told that without any anything else, that there was there was no contract anymore. So I went after the Gold Coast, and uh, the FFA offered me a, a one-year deal to stay at Townsville. And um, Ange phoned me from um, from Germany. He, he was just speaking with Thomas Broich, and he phoned me from Germany, said that he'd like, he'd like me to come to Brisbane, and he offered me a two-year deal. FFA wouldn't offer me anything. They didn't offer any player more than a one-year deal at that point. So it was an easy option after speaking with Ange and his ambition and intentions with the club to go and join his project, to speak, and I guess be a, be a contributor to that.
0: So this is where the, the real dynasty starts. You go to Brisbane Raw, and this is the first real dynasty in A-League history under Ange Postacoglu and also Mike Mulvey three grand finals for three championships. Uh, what made that group so good?
2: I get asked this question a lot. And I think that there's so many finer details that I can elaborate on. When I look back on how it all started, I think what made made the group what it was at the beginning was the vision of what we wanted to achieve. It was the, the vision of creating something bigger than just than just winning matches and I think that what you just elaborated then was what we were trying to achieve and I think that was a legacy for what we were all what we were bought into is probably the best way to put it there was a, a philosophy in there was a, a belief class vision of and maybe a challenge actually because at that point was something documented it was certainly documented uh, within the media over over those years at Brisbane is that especially the early stages that Australian players can't play a certain way of football. And I think that was that was a mindset that we wanted to try and change. That didn't come from myself, that came from, from Ange and the coaching staff. What Ange's done was he recruited a squad of players that he believed would be able to implement that system. So it started with a belief, it started with a, a mindset, started with a vision. And then it started from a recruitment point of view of what sort of players were able to do that. And one of the things that always sticks with me is that the first year that I joined, I guess more than anything in terms of my ability, I was desperate to take my chance. Like I had a unrivaled motivation to succeed, regardless of anything else. And other players at that point, like Michael Theo, that had, had a, a, a very challenging year at Norwich. Eric partley was playing third or fourth here in Scotland. Costa Barbarousas was, I think he played some like six games in, in three years at Wellington. Um, you know, the recruitment of players, coming in all had an unrivaled desire to want to succeed and take an opportunity so the environment in terms of how we trained how we planned how we prepared the accountability that we used to have amongst each other um and the the belief and vision from Ange and the coaching staff of, of how we play i mean i could go on for probably a few more hours of, of really finer nitty-gritty uh, day-to-day things that we're doing but in a nutshell there's some of the key components as to how it all started or why it was so successful, I guess.
0: Now, that's an awesome insight. And, and it's like, really, when you look at the A-League as a whole, there hasn't been a lot of real periods of overall domination by one club. Probably the only two are uh, Brisbane Raw and then, lately, Sydney FC, who won three championships in four years like you guys. But I know Melbourne Victory have, have won four championships as well, but it's they were kind of more spread out. But you guys were the first group to really dominate the competition for... A long period of time, so I'm sure that's something that not only you, but everyone that was involved is very very proud of.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean a lot of people were devastated when Aaron left to go to Melbourne Victory, myself included, because he was the one that gave me a chance, he was the one that made me club captain, so obviously there was a overwhelming amount of emotion when when, when he left, because that was the power that he has with the group. I guess what the challenge was is that the club then had an identity, but their key leader obviously left the club, so I guess that's where the, I guess the key and, and core members of that playing group. Now, when I go through it, Michael Theo, myself, Shane Stefanutu, Ivan Franich, Parley Thomas, Bryce, Matthew Mandaka, Matt Mackay, um, Luke Bratton, Mitch Nichols, Henrique. <laughs> there was there was a key core group that continued to drive that legacy for the number of years. I guess you could say. Um, post-Angie's departure because that was the identity of the club and that was what was built that was how we were built you know and I guess I endorsed the club at that point that they you know they were pretty quick to to lock us all into longer term contracts to try and protect that when they could have quite easily gone in a potentially a different direction from a football id point of view so so yeah there was there was lots of challenges along the way obviously we won the first year and and then we won the second year in terms of the championship we had the the Asian Champions League to, to kind of contend with on the second year. So we, we were just pipped by by Mariners in terms of the league. Then we were able to take out the grand final. And then when Ange left, obviously we then had a change of coach. And we weren't as successful in the in the third year. And then um, obviously we were then successful again in the fourth year.
0: Just before we, we get into those three grand finals, Ange Postacoglu, you mentioned, was the driving force in that, or the, certainly the first two of the three championships. Brisbane Raw, Melbourne Victory and, and, of course, the national team. Um, what was your relationship like with Ange Postacoglu and, and what made him one of the great coaches this country has seen?
2: I think my relationship with Ange and, and from what I've read and heard is, is his relationship with all players. It's just professional. I think, you know, there's, he's very clear on, on his demands and what he expects of his players and he gives you the, the unwavering confidence to be able to to play for him but the relationship was purely professional as is what I'm playing with with most players it's not there's some coaches that I've had in my career which are more personable in terms of they you know they they spend more time with you in terms of you know on the pitch and off the pitch whereas whereas Ange was you know he he kept his social social side and professional side very very separate so the players knew exactly you know the relationships and the boundaries and, and 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 kind of where everyone was was placed so I guess my um, relationship with him was, was very, was close, obviously, but it, it was also very professional in the context of what we were trying to achieve.
0: That's really interesting. And I've never really heard of that sort of response. It was Ange more, how do I say, I'm not your friend, I'm your coach?
2: No, it, it was never that. But there, there, was always, there was always clear professional boundaries. Communications and conversations were always about football and the team and the club. It was just the way that the relationship was. I guess is probably the best way to put it. Again, from a, a purely uh, one-on-one point of view, or, or squad or team point of view, all conversations were directed around around the club. It was uh, or the team or the, the opposition or the play or whatever we were doing. So it wasn't like it wasn't. Um, I didn't perceive it as a negative. I actually thought it's a positive, and some of those traits I then I now deploy within my own coaching staff. It's not that he wasn't personal. He was. He was very personal. He was very approachable. But in terms of actual, um, I guess, from a relationship point of view, it was very professional, and that's that's what all the players respected because there wasn't any difference that the players saw amongst each other. Everything was was purely was purely professional from 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 one player to the next. The
1: referee says, "Fellas, take a break. It's half-time.
0: Hey everyone, I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q. I really do appreciate all the support. I trust you're enjoying delving into all things Australian sport and hopefully you will continue to stick around. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid. Subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now enough of that, let's get back into it, because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. Talking about those grand finals, first of all, we'll start off with 2011, so Central Coast Mariners, who had been a very, very consistent team for a while, they were always around the mark in those early A-League years, but they, they just couldn't get it done on the big stage until 2013, but still in my opinion one of the, well, the greatest grand final in the league's history, I think. In front of 50,000 people, the Mariners find themselves then 2-0 up in extra time, but the fighting spirit from the Raw is just unbelievable. Enrique scores and then Patelou in the dying stages scores to take it into penalties and you eventually win 4-2 on pens. What what are your memories from that and, and how were you able to win from an almost impossible circumstance? wherever in the world you're watching welcome to brisbane for
1: the 2010 2011 hyundai a league grand final the first in queensland in 14 years and at a stadium that less than two months ago was underwater after the devastation caused by the recent floods but today the stadium that epitomizes the sunshine state is a wash with color the brilliant orange of brisbane and how brilliant the team in orange have been this season here's the corner Back into the danger zone, there's Abini, it's in the back of the net from Adam Kwasnick The Mariners have scored Kwasnick steers it up And Buzanik surely clinches the championship for the Central Coast Mariners Here's some awesome, oh just break away Andy Maybe a chance here for Brisbane Enrique, it's 2-1 Game on, the grand final is not dead yet for Brisbane Here it goes kick separating Brisbane Roar from their second trophy of the season Enrique against Ryan it's all on this, Enrique scores! Brisbane are the champions and who'd have thought we'd have been saying that some 10 minutes ago what an incredible comeback what an incredible team this Brisbane Raw side is! It's Brisbane's day! It's Brisbane's season! It's Brisbane's time! Ange Postacoglu's team claimed the championship to go with the Premiership. And for the first time in the A League era, we could say, Brisbane Raw, champions of Australia!
2: I think, again, that comes down to Ange's philosophy. Um, you know, we were very prepped and planned going in but um we were what we, we were the highest ranked team to score in the last 15 minutes of games because our approach and our philosophy basically wore teams down so we knew that teams would be able to sustain a momentum against us for a period of time but we also knew that they wouldn't be able to do that from a, from a, a longevity point of view and that if we stuck to our principles of our play and how we played, then the chances will come now we actually never we won all three grand finals but we never scored a goal before the 82nd minute in all three. You some idea of like that unwavering discipline and and belief within our players and our squads that we knew that we could do anything at any minute, at any moment in time. And I think going back to the Central Coast Mariners, and they were a very good team, Um, you know, they they challenged us and pushed us and they had some very, very good players at that that point. Um, And um, probably the biggest difference in them last four minutes of the grand final was that Tactically, um, they played a very, very good game. The last four minutes, they probably changed the way that they played. Whereas, and and you know, for 160 minutes, they done very, very well. But then they changed how they played, and then we didn't change how we played. And um, I guess we then got the opportunities. And, and look, a corner is a corner as well. Without we, we carlos header, but up until that point, like I said, we had a we had a belief that we'd always you know get an opportunity. We'd always um, continue and, and we never gave up it's probably the biggest thing and that comes down to my preparation and training.
0: And 2011 was of course your first championship in the A-League. What's that feeling like when you know I guess you're forever scripted in A-League history as a champion?
2: Oh look I mean I guess from a, from, from a personal point of view and my career within football up until that point was very up and down so yeah number one like I had a short career but everything happened very very quickly for us in terms of I guess you could say professional football and then success in professional football, especially here in Australia, and then to captain the second one, you know, is a feeling which was phenomenal, really. So, from that point of view, like the feeling of that was like, wow! Like I made a pro pro contract and pro team, and I'm in, I'm living this amazing part of my life, and and then to be successful and winning championships, like I don't think, I don't think at that point, <laughs> there's words to kind of describe like how engrossed we were into it. Um, But we weren't, we we were never motivated. It's funny, we were never motivated by winning championships. And that was the key. Like, our our, our team and our squad knew that the championships and the success would be the byproduct of what we were doing every single day. So people always think about the grand finals and think about how we played. But very, a lot of people get surprised when I say it's how we used to train every single day was probably one of the fondest memories of that era, which might be a bit weird to hear. We all knew what we all wanted to achieve. There was lots of different personalities within that group. You get that a lot within football, but probably the best strength of that group is that we weren't necessarily best friends, but we had the utmost respect for what each other brought within that group of players, if that makes sense. Like, there's only, you know, there's there's a handful of players which, you know, I'm friends with and I'm still in contact with them now, but there's some, some greats within that team that, you know, I haven't spoken to for a, a huge number of years now. So. It wasn't. It wasn't a, It wasn't the relationship that we were, that we we're all best friends. There was a the relationship that we all extremely like respected what each other brought for that team and 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 that squad in their own way. And that was probably the, the glue that kind of kept us kept us there and and I guess kept us progressing as as those years unfolded.
0: And do you think that relationship allowed you to get the best out of each other?
2: Well, there was no. There was no real ego within that group there was no there was nobody that was thought that they were bigger or better than the next person and it didn't matter if you were if you were one of the 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 youth team players coming in and and training with the first like Luke Bratton for example is a is a key example that he trained for two or three years full-time with the first team before we actually got you know he he then took over from from Eric Parsley now he was accountable every single day just as I was accountable and Thomas Boris was accountable to each other so the drive within training and the standards within training was so high that it didn't matter who you are, we were all accountable to each other and we used to be honest enough to be accountable with one another as well. So I've said the competition and the environment and culture within training, culture is a big buzzword, but everyone uses the word culture, but do they really know how how to feel it? Like it, it for me it's a feeling. for me it's actions and I guess that was probably the biggest strength of that group during that period. And, that's not to say we didn't have challenges. I mean, you know, over the four or five years, there was many different challenges. But still, like, what was a collective effort was sincerely a collective force, really.
0: So, after 2011, 2012 was your first year where you were the captain of the club. How did that come about and what, what did it mean to you to captain that side?
2: It came about because Matt Bakai had a, a fantastic opportunity to go and play for Rangers, one of the biggest clubs in Europe. So he obviously left off after the first championship, and at that point, I wasn't I wasn't in the leadership group the first year. I, I'd only just before bought into the leadership group after Matt's departure, but the captain hadn't been announced, and there was players in there that had already been in the leadership group the previous year, and I, I never even expected it in uh, my wildest dreams, probably is the best way to put it. And um, I got a phone call from a journalist, Mark Monteverdi, the the night before, Ange told me, and he said, "I'm hearing that you're the new raw captain." And I, I basically spat my coffee out, saying, "There's absolutely no chance." I just had my my second child literally like the day before, or something like that, as well. And oh, wow. and um, and Ange pulled me aside before training, very casual, and he said, Matt, I, I'd like you to be the new captain of the club." And it, it, it was a very brief conversation, and I said, oh, I, "I'll be I'll be very honoured, and I, I won't let you down." And, and that was pretty much about it, within a few words, of course, but. But yeah, and then we just carried on as training as normal. Again, there was, there was a number of leaders in there, and that's probably the biggest strength. Is that although there was one person that officially named as captain, I had some fantastic leaders around me. Like I said, Michael Theo, Shane Stefanusso, Thomas Roy, Brett Berisher, Eric, Luke, Ivan. There was a very, very strong group of leaders within there that it wasn't just one captain. There was, again, there was a very, very strong leadership group that was united with them.
0: So, 2012, your first season as the captain. So, that was, uh, obviously, of course, you won the championship again. So, an incredible and a dramatic game. You had the the Franich own goal. Perth glory, they just need to hold on with about six minutes to go. A guy by the name of Bessart Barisha, who is now widely considered one of, if not the best striker this league has seen, scores twice. And, of course, that penalty decision basically just seconds remaining wins the game and you become the first A-League club to win back-to-back titles. What did that championship mean to win it as captain?
1: And Brisbane Roar get us underway for the seventh Hyundai A-League Grand Final. But smelts at the near post. Dodd can't find him. Across it comes. It's in. Billy Mellet. It might have been an own goal of Ivan Franic. Poe's glory. Draw first blood in the Grand Final. Breuch. Ripped in towards Borussia. Restores parity in the grand final. A true goal poacher, he is Snappled up by Brink and then down goes Barisha. Penalty! Penalty for Brisbane Roar. Barisha celebrates as though they won the grand final already. Big decision by the referee. Late, late drama again in the grand final at Suncorp Stadium. Well, if they score the penalty here, at Brisbane, Perth argue long into the night and beyond that the spot kick should never have been awarded. It's all on this. Bessart Barisha surely to win the grand final. It's all on Daddy Vukovic for Perth flooring. It comes down to a penalty kick. And Barisha scores!
2: I think it was difficult enough to win the first championship coming. I think Brisbane were all the wooden spoon the previous year that we all arrived and no one really tipped us to do what we achieved and I guess during that those first two years we had the unbeaten streak of games as well which was another thing that we never we never, we never measured but we knew as it got closer that the media kind of jumped on and was kind of there for the grabs as well and to win that second, over the second year is one thing to win it the first time but I think it's... Sometimes even harder to be the hunted is the best way to put it because of the other clubs that are trying to top you off. And like the first year was a, a fantastic year. We come from nowhere. We kind of playing this style of football and this brand and this is what we achieved. And but then second year, it's like everyone wants to now to knock you off. So it was very challenging from that year. Plus we had the Asian Champions League towards the back end of the year. So I remember playing the grand final and then having to fly straight away to Tokyo, for example, which was different challenges. So to win it, on the second year, was especially losing our key leader, like to losing someone like Matt Mackay is a, is a massive thing for the club. He's uh, probably one of Australia's all-time best players, really, as far as I'm concerned. So to win it the second time in the changing circumstances that we did was, was highly rewarding from a club and a, a team and an individual point of view, especially throughout those challenges that we had during that year. So. Never from a playing point of view, but like I said, from a, the amount of games traveling into Asia back and forth, losing, and you know that was the first year that we had best up airshare as well. So again, comes back down to the recruitment was was very good, and yeah, to, to, to be the first club in Australian history again to go back to back to be all-time Australian unbeaten record is another massive legacy, and yeah, it was again it was, it was how we done it more than anything else.
0: Bessart brurusha penalty how did you see that decision because that was obviously very controversial at the time did you think that was a penalty
2: but there's been lots of i guess you could say fiery debate about this I personally believe it was a penalty on the principle that he's kicked his standing foot not his sticking foot and 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 there's huge contact there which which puts more balance and makes them fall over so um if you ask first fans you know or, or, or neutral fans they might have a, a differing opinion but that's that's my take on it. I, th- I think it was a penalty. And and yeah, I don't think some people will agree and some people will disagree. I think it's important that people also remember Beresha for the type of person that he is. Once he crosses the line, like we all do, it's, it's there's different personalities. But I shared a, I shared a room with him for two seasons. And uh, I think what I'd like people to remember him for is that there's one version of better on the pitch, but off the pitch, he's a, he's an unbelievable person. Very highly valued family man. Is very sincere and, and, and very genuine within his within his character um, and, and personal traits. From a football side of things, I don't think there can be too many questions asked about who is one of Australia's all time best strikers, domestic or international, because, you know, to so win, I think he's won five championships, numerous goals. His work off the ball is, is phenomenal. I don't think there'll be too many people that will question, that will, will be able to question that, that statement. And he's, done it as a, and he's also done it at numerous clubs. I know that Western United weren't, weren't as successful as Victory or the Raw, but to be able to go down to, to Melbourne and also win it there as well, you know, to change himself in a different way, um, is another feat for that too.
0: No, I agree. I think people talk about his theatrics and stuff like that, but I, I don't think you can deny he is one of the best strikers we've ever had here in the A-League, probably number one.
2: I bet you, if anyone said, would you Bar- best Bersard Barish in your team, even if they didn't like him from the outset,
0: Before we get into the final stretch of this incredible chat, we need to take a final break for three-quarter time here on A5Q. Now, as I'm sure you're all aware, I love podcasting. It really is an enjoyable ride and a chance for me to share my passion to the world. So why don't you do the same? Whether it be a sports podcast like mine, a comedy podcast, an educational podcast, a movie, TV show, or gaming podcast, or even if you just want to get a few friends together for a weekly chat, it doesn't matter what your podcast is about. What matters is setting it up through Podbean. Podbean is the best and most certainly the easiest way to start a podcast. And the best part of it is it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg. If you hit up my special link at www.podbean.com A5Q, you'll have the choice of starting your brand new podcast for as little as $9 per month on an annual plan. Now that is an unbelievable price considering you'll get unlimited storage, beautiful podcast themes, you'll be able to map your own domain, comprehensive podcast stats, and podcast monetization. Now, guys, I tried to set up my podcast with a few other websites and just couldn't work it out. It was way too complicated, but Podbean was just so simple, so easy to use, and it produced the results for me. So definitely, if you've been thinking about starting your own podcast, but you've got no idea how to go about it, visit www.podbean.com dot com slash A5Q and get started with Podbean today to join the Pod family. Or if it's easier, the link will be in the description below. But in the meantime, let's get back to the show. So 2014 is the last of the three championships against the Wanderers who are uh, in their second season in existence were already playing in their second grand final. Again you're 1-0 down. Bessart Barisha once again strikes deep into the game to clinch the draw and you win it in extra time. How does that 2014 title stack up with the other two because of course you had a different coach this time around. Yeah, what did what did that that third and final championship mean to you?
1: Some fans on hand for the ninth Hyundai A-League Grand Final between Brisbane Roar and the Western Sydney Wanderers. Those Wanderers fans perhaps sensing a goal is imminent. Oh, no, with the end 3 300 in post and a goal for the the breakthrough arrives through Matthew veranovic we're into the final five minutes Breutz to chip it in and there's Berisha, there's the equalizer and it just had to be besar barisha love him or hate him you just cannot ignore him it's towards enrique he's not the tallest he's managed to flick it on towards donerkey here's enrique substitute scored in the grand final against the Mariners in 2011. Does it in 2014. Is that the championship winner for Brisbane? There it is. Brisbane have won it. The orange order is restored. It took just one season of transition, and the team now led by Mike Mulvey are back on top once again. It's cruel on the Wanderers, they're beaten for the second year in a row in the grand final. But Brisbane Raw premiers, now title winners, champions of Australia for a record third time. The captain of the Brisbane Raw, number two, Matt Smith.
2: Firstly, I'd just like to congratulate Western Sydney on such a superb season. I think the, the top two teams in the league it was only fair that we spread off in the grand final. It was a fantastic game. It was a very, very tough match. We wish you all the best for the coming weeks. For our fans, we owed you this from last year, plain and simple. This wasn't good enough. We said about pre-season, making sure that we wanted to be the hardest working team, the best performing team, and now the most successful team in the club's in, in the A-League's history. Thank you very much and enjoy the night. Thank you. Well, obviously, we weren't successful in the third year. So, the fourth year was all about basically getting getting back onto the plan, maybe is the best way to put it. So, obviously, going into that season, you know, there's a clear objective that we wanted to regain our titles back. So, there was an unwavering desire amongst the group to, you know, and recruitment plays an important role. Like, we, you know, we saw some very, very key players throughout that year, like Liam Miller come in, Diego Ferreira come in. So, we had, um, you know, we had a good... Recruitment drive in that, which kind of drove and lifted the group. So to get that third one after the like the third championship in the fourth year after the unsuccessful third year was a well, it's taken us a year to transition from coaches and certain players, to now regain our title doing it the way that we like to do it. So again, it was it, it was a year which we were very very dominant. I think that we finished pretty similar to, to the first season. Actually, we won the league with you know a few games still to play. Um, and, and we went into the season very, very strong. So, again, it was a different, different feeling. It was more about, okay, well, we were dominant for two years. We've had an off year. But we're certainly kind of back in back in the groove, maybe, is the best way to put it.
0: So, out of those three championships, is there one in particular you hold in the highest regard? Like, is there a 3-2-1 order? Or do you look at them all equally?
2: <laughs> it's a very changing question, that. I think that, uh, look, the emotion the emotions were highly different on all of them. You know, the first one to to kinda of go from nowhere, you know, and then I guess you could say dominate the league and and do it how we done it, well, it was just we we're one of Australia's greatest sporting moments. The second year of going back to back and having to defend our title and playing in Asia and, and still being successful was a, a different emotion. And then to be unsuccessful and have to get back to those sorts of levels of standards is a is a I guess you could say a different type of emotion. So it's very tough for me to say a 3-2-1. Um, I kind of class them as all equal, but just of varying degrees and 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 and, and varying levels, really. <laughs> Which I know that you're probably looking for a 3-2-1, but again, I've been I've I've been very lucky in my career that you know, I've been able to you know have three experiences on that. Whereas you know some players don't, yeah, you know, some very very good Australian players don't get the opportunity to be able to have that.
0: No, nah, definitely well answered. Can respect that 100%. After this Brisbane dynasty is complete, and and 2014 15, um, the the Raw were were not really anywhere near the level they had been. They only really just snuck into the finals and were quickly eliminated. But uh, by this stage, you had moved on, so you signed in Thailand, and you also later played in Hong Kong. Uh, what are your memories?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess started with, whilst I was playing at the Raw. Um, I guess being being successful as a as a, as a club meant that we. Not only myself, but other players, I guess, were, were um, targets for, for, for clubs in Asia. And initially, it was, it was never uh, my objective or I wasn't, I guess, too interested in, in a deal in, into Asia, principally because what we were building at the uh, ROAR and obviously playing, playing a, you know, a good role within that, uh, I, didn't, I wasn't too interested in any kind of moves away. And then after, after the third championship, which was the fourth year, I was turning 32 at the point. Um, it was uh, the year leading into the, to the World Cup when we won the league and the, and the championship again. And, and uh, I guess I, I um, after that championship, and um, I guess you know, trying to give you know good shot to put my name forward for, for, for any for any kind of soccer squad. There was um, an opportunity from from Thailand, and and um, at some point. I guess at, at that at that point after the third one I guess it, it, it started to spark a bit of interest to challenge myself at a pro level in a different country. You know, it's something that as a as a player I never really had throughout my career because obviously i turned professional very late on. So to get the opportunity to go and challenge myself in a different environment at the age of 32 was probably going to be my last chance and people might think why Thailand and, and opposed to you know, potential deals in China or Korea or which I wanted to come up in the past, and the simple reason was is that when when other deals were offered to me, they were kind of offered to me through agents. And um, the the club that came in for me in Thailand was was Bangkok gas and um, they um, their owners were the owners of Singer Beer, and they they done things completely completely different what, what they, they they made the approach and obviously they they actually the vice president of the club and and the coach flew in flew into Australia and um, we spent a, you know a couple of days obviously this was you know under the um, permission of Brisbane rule of course we spent a couple of days standing each other out they were very clear on what role they wanted me to play within their club and I was obviously keen to digest and sitting around in terms of questions and research as to, as to that role as well so that opportunity to come into Asia was probably the first time that, that the club had gone to that length to come in and find me and I guess other opportunities were dependent upon you know the club making final decisions on other central defenders around Australia or Asia and whereas this one was you're the one we want these are the reasons why this is what you want you to bring so it was handled very very different so I went into that deal Going into Thailand, knowing exactly what I was kind of walking into, really, uh, positives and negatives. So that that shows to me a level of uh, probably respect and professionalism that I hadn't received from other offers from China or Korea throughout my time at Brisbane. So that's how that kind of moved from about, which generally excited me. It was a point in my career where, like I said, it's probably the last opportunity for me to to make a move into Asia. So that was the reasons why why I moved in there, and I was excessively surprised at the level of at the, at the beginning the level of vision from from the club's point of view they were probably a mid-table team when i first joined them with you know a couple of good other foreign players and a reasonable level of local side players but the resources in the environment that they created over that four year period in terms of building building something and being part of something and, and, create. and again, that, that, that culture was probably one of the key reasons for why why they wanted to recruit us um, during that period. So over that four-year stretch, I guess you could say the attraction of better foreigners, but probably more so the attraction of recruiting better local Thai players, but obviously developing younger type players as well. So the level of resources that they put around the clubs, the academy system, the development system, the youth models, the infrastructure and support around the first team from on the pitch and, and off the pitch um, and you know, they won their first high title uh, last season and made the Champions League and they've actually won the King's Cup yesterday. So yeah, like the progression of the club is probably the biggest probably the thing that I noticed over the period of time that I was there.
0: With this time here, you mentioned that you had the ambition to represent Australia and play for the Socceroos um, and that's something yeah. that I also wanted to, to ask you. And you re- represented Australia on three occasions. Where does yep. that sit in your achievements to have put the green and gold on and play for your country? Especially for somebody who wasn't actually born in Australia. What does it mean to you to put that kid on and represent Australia?
2: Oh, it was a phenomenal um, honour for me to you know, play for and um, represent Australia. Australia is, is now my home. You know, myself and my family... We emigrated to Australia, and we now call Australia home. So, to represent the nation, and, 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 and from a, a football context point of view, where I kind of come from from nothing in terms of the pro environment, but then in a in a, in a very short space of time, represent Australia which is a phenomenal experience that I'll never forget. and I'm very proud and honoured to be able to represent Australia. Australia is the home, and my children were born here. Our, our future is in Australia. I always knew that despite potentially your career taking you outside of Australia, our roots are well and truly here. So it was um, an amazing experience and unfortunately one that I wasn't able to continue with. I guess timing, timing in football was everything as well and I've had some bad timing, I've had some good timing, Um, I guess with that comes a little bit of luck. But I ended up hurting my hip during um, a period shortly after making my my three appearances and then um, I had to have hip surgery, which, which basically took me out for about five or six months. And that was the point where um, we're leading into the World Cup qualifiers with, with Holder, And um, I, they flew me down to a camp in Coff Harbor ahead of the World Cup qualifiers. And I had some friendlies um, lined up. And I was just coming back from, from my hip. And I was I, I started resuming training again, but I wasn't quite ready to, to kind of play. And they had friendlies against Brazil and France and, and those score lines. Uh, weren't a good reflection on, on the on the football at that point, and that's when, um, and that's when the change occurred with, with Holger and, and Ange, and I guess uh, from from then, um, and and from then I obviously didn't get an opportunity to to, to go again for the national team, and um, and yeah, so although it was a, a, a short experience of my time in the national team, I'm, I'm obviously very honoured and, and grateful for that opportunity to play international football.
0: Do, do you ever wonder if maybe? you potentially could have gone to a world cup at all
2: oh yeah look, i mean at the end of the day the, the most important people with those with with those thought processes of the, the coaches and the coaching staff that's not for me to decide obviously i i think that i put my best foot forward during that during that point you know we won we won the league and the championship and i I thought that I, I had a good season but i'm not i'm not better about that again it, it's it's purely for pulling reasons and, and um, decisions and uh yeah i guess it it just it just wasn't to be but on that note obviously yeah it's um it would have been nice to but again it just comes back to injury uh, as well during during that during that key point but again i can't have too many complaints Uh, again very very grateful for the opportunity and um understand that football there's positives and there's negatives with everything so um Yeah, what might have been was there, but I guess that that also contributed, I guess, a little bit as to a a decision to, I guess, change myself in a new and and different environment.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and well-answered. Matt, just as we are about to close up now, I've got three last questions for you. In your entire career in any league, any club, who is the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? And lastly, who is the best coach you ever played under and why?
2: Uh, the the easy one is the best coach I've ever played under is, is, is Ange, obviously Ange possibly, um without a shadow of a doubt. He taught me things in in my game, and he made me think very differently about football, which uh, kind of opened my my mindset and, and and how I how I behaved and how I thought and think about football. So that one's a relatively easy one. Best player I've played with. Oh well, um, I think the best player I've played with would probably have to be, and it's a top maybe Thomas Borish. I think that, um, alongside with, you know, Bessar Barishali, he's one of the, one of the best in boards Australia's ever seen. Best player I've played against, there's been some, there's been some, there's been some good ones, obviously. Um, I guess on a consistent, on, on a consistent basis, playing against Archie Thompson was always a challenge because as a central defender, he is very mobile and used to run off the shoulder. So it's always difficult to, to, to identify where he's running and where he's moving. So they're always changing games for me on a consistent basis. But best player played against, probably probably Paul Pogba. But obviously we played against Juventus for the for the Australian All Stars. So just phenomenal player. But obviously I can probably name ten other players within that team as well, which are, which were also pretty good. So but if I was to identify one one player, then then that would be that.
0: Now nah, well answered. Matt Smith, it's been fantastic to have you on the show I really do appreciate your time an icon of the A-League and an absolute legend of the Brisbane Raw Football Club and I wish you all the very best in everything you're doing now out of professional football
2: Thanks Dan, really good questions and really enjoyed the interview Thank you so much
0: there it is. It's all over. And that's a wrap Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time, old sport.